this morning, but before we get started, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we can spend a little time in Acts 16. Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning as we look again in your text, that we will be reminded that you are a powerful God, a God who moves, a God who convicts, a God who saves, a God who redeems. You're also a God who teaches and opens people's hearts to receive your truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us as we consider the text this morning that we will be reminded of the beauty of your salvation work. So glorify yourself in our time. In your name I pray. Amen. Let me start out by saying um, I left, I made a mistake this morning. I left uh, a piece of material at home uh, that I wanted to bring, an illustration that I wanted to bring, but I'm going to try my hardest to bring it out of my brain for you this morning, <clears throat> as damaged as my brain is. We're going to try it and see, uh, and see what the Lord is able to bring me to recollection. In any case, this week I got a, um, a letter in the mail. It was a packet letter, about that thick, about a half inch thick I got in the mail. And I was intrigued what it was, so I opened it up because there was no evidence explanation on the, on the outside of the envelope of what company it came from. I knew it was obviously from a company. Upon opening the letter uh, or the envelope, I discovered that I was thinking really wrongly about Christianity. I discovered that not only was I thinking really badly and wrongly about Christianity, so was Paul, the apostle. Not only was Paul thinking really wrongly about Christianity, but so was Peter and so was Luke, and so was James, and John, and Jesus. They were all wrong about Christianity. Because you see, according to the letter that I received, this envelope that I received this week, what I discovered from this company was that the answer to Christianity and the answer to the church is a pen. It's a pen. Now, lest you think I'm overstating the case, and I suspect in reading the extended information, the person who runs this company, by the way, the president and CEO, as he identifies himself, may very well claim to be a believer. Okay? But here's the type of statements he said. Do you want your church to grow? You need this pen. Because it had the church's name and its address on it. And ready for this? And its telephone number. It had it all. And then it went on, and the, the, art, the, the letter that came with it talked about how this pen is the perfect way to celebrate, for the church to celebrate Christmas. Oh, and by the way, it's also the perfect way to help the members of your church to grow. In the Lord. They wanted to explain the reason why is because it reminds the people of the church of the church. Oh, and it's also a great tool of evangelism. Because you can give this to unbelievers and they'll have the church contact information. Oh, and my favorite. This is an easy way for your members to present the gospel to unsaved people. And hard, try as I would, as I looked at the pen, there was no gospel on it because they came with a sample pen. There was no gospel, but it was a pen. I didn't try to see if it worked or not. It may very well work in writing, but it certainly won't work with what they were saying. Yeah, maybe. My point is, 
you've heard me say numerous times, have you not, that I think the church in the non-persecuted world is thinking poorly, not thinking biblically, not thinking rightly, not thinking God's thoughts after him. You've heard me say it before, right? I have a sneaking suspicion there's going to be a lot of churches that are going to be having pens. I suspect there will be. I'm not talking about stupid liberal churches. I'm talking about conservative churches. I'm talking about happy, clappy only, happy, clappy churches. I'm talking about what you'd call normal conservative churches. Well, maybe they won't buy the actual pen and hand them out like this guy was saying, but the point is, you know as well as I do, advertising works Why? Because it's tapping into what people either hope for or want or believe. Right? Advertising doesn't work if it doesn't tap into those three things. And how much of Christianity hopes that I really don't have to do much? That I really don't have to take a risk? to bring people to Christ. That I really don't have to really lift anything more than two fingers and a pen to cause the church to grow. And we go on and on and on. How much of Christianity really falls into that realm? I found myself initially kind of laughing about this pen company. But then I began to find myself grieving. Because it's really, it's really real. It's really real. The average Christian doesn't want to take the risk. The average Christian does want to find the easy way, don't they? And we do think that there are nice, slick, cool, Ways to make this whole thing happen. That can be summed up with the wisdom of man. Can't it? Isn't that the way it, it oftentimes is? Slicker, smoother, faint, more, more glitzy, more eye-catching, whatever the case may be. Instead of the reality that Christ called us to die. He didn't call us to buy pens and pass out pens, did he? <laughs> called us to die. Called us to sacrifice, didn't he? Because the object, Jesus, is worth far greater didn't he? He absolutely did. But that's not what we hear today. Too often. It's not what we hear. Now, maybe the ad was a little extreme. <laughs> I suspect it wasn't as extreme as we really think it is. I mean, just for example... The church in America has moved today from, I'm being general of course, I'm broad brush approaching it, has moved from a strong reminder and call that's according to the scriptures of bringing the light into darkness to quite to the contrary, just invite your neighbor or your friend or your co-worker to church and let the professional tell them the gospel. Isn't that where we moved to? I mean, that's, Super common. It's not what the scriptures say, but that's what's happening today. Everywhere. It's common. It's most common. Very most common. If, if there's a number of observations we're going to make this morning in our, in our text we're going to look at, but if I could just say it this way, 
I find the story of Paul and Silas in Philippi to be one of those stories that, if I could describe it with one word, it's absolutely, there's two words, absolutely counterintuitive. It's not what you would think would be effective. God does things in ways that you look at and you say, really? Serious? Isn't there like 8,000 better ways to have done this than the way you did it? And you, you can almost hear God saying, yeah. Yep. Certainly about one of the most inefficient ways to do it is possible. But in so doing, it shows my glory. It shows that my plan is better. My way is better. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning of uh, Acts chapter 16. We could have just as easily read all the way through verse 40 to get the whole context, but I didn't want to have Tom too much to read. So, um, but we are only going to be looking at 11 through 16 or 11 through 15 this morning. Um, and the story uh, is, it's the beginning of the story that, that flows onward all the way through 40. But it's the story of Paul's initial entrance and communication and ministry uh, to the Philippian people in the city of Philippi. I'm going to read 11 through 15 again, because that's the text we're going to specifically be looking at, then we're going to work our way through it, starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to, to, to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. By the way, from Neapolis, it's about a 10-mile walk to, um, to Philippi, just to give you an idea. Um, the, the voyage that he goes in verse 11 normally takes about five days, but because of prevailing winds, uh, you can gather the idea that it was much quicker. Uh, the, the idea that they went straight there, it was like, it was like uh, the picture, in, it literally in the original language, is they raced there, so it's a lot quicker than usual. In any case, 10, days, uh, t- uh, ten miles of walk, um, verse 12, there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we were outside the gate to the riverside. Uh, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. That's our text this morning. I thought about going beyond that, but there's enough here that we want to talk about that I think it's important we give it its time. Um, so, they, they, they go, leave Troas, they take a, a sailboat ride to Neapolis, uh, eventually, and then uh, from there they head to Philippi, as we just talked about. And notice how Luke describes um, Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. So a couple things we know about the city of Philippi at this point, just because of verse 12. Uh, the things we see, uh, first of all, it's in Macedonia, which means it's in Greece. Just so you're aware, it's a Grecian city. It's not described as a Grecian city, however. It's described as a leading city of the district of Macedonia. That means it's like capital type of situation. A, one of the capitals, one of the most important cities. But notice it's called a Roman colony, which took place, it became a Roman, Roman colony back in the uh, before Christ era, about 40-50 B.C., uh, at the conclusion of a battle, the, the uh, Romans identified the city of, of um, Philippi to be crucial strategically, and so they made it a Roman colony that came with a lot of blessings. You were a Roman citizen if you were from Philippi. Uh, that gave you all sorts of privileges, privileges of travel. Uh, you could freely travel. Uh, very easily anywhere in the, not just the region, but the entire empire. Uh, you, got, you had to pay less taxes, much less taxes, if you lived in Philippi versus living outside of Philippi. It was a very rich 
city. If you lived in in Philippi, you you were well-to-do, typically. And you, uh, you ha- found yourself to be uh, a person by definition of, of quite a bit of status. Um, it was a very influential city. It was primarily strategic, and as a result of that, there was a lot of soldiers there. There was a lot of, um, of military might there as well. It was... It was a place, if there was any uprising, the first place that would be called to be Philippi, to uh, the soldiers to go out and fight. So it was a very important city. It had a lot of influence over the entire area. I want you to get that picture because this is really important. A lot of influence and respect, honor. It was a city that heavily influenced the culture, in other words. Paul arrives in that city. Remember what he said, how God oftentimes does things very differently what you'd expect? It's an intriguing storyline. We remained in the city, you'll notice in the end of verse 12, we remained in the city some days. Most likely, when he says some days, he's talking about both before um, before the, uh, the initial Sabbath that they talk about in just a few seconds, as well as afterwards. We know he was stuck there for a little while because he gets thrown in prison. Um, but be that as it may, we find that he says at the end of 12, we remained in the city some days. That's all he says. We remained in the city some days. But I would say by implication, the point he's trying to make when he says it is several fold. Number one, he's in the city. What do you think he's doing? He's preaching the gospel. Now, come on. Who said that? You said that, Jim? You don't think he's just handing out pens? Okay, I just want to clarify. Quills. (laughs) I would expect that from Tom. (laughs) He's not handing out pens or quills and inkwells. He's handing out the gospel, isn't he? That's what he's there for. He's preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel. However, nothing is mentioned of his ministry. It just says he remained there several days. Numerous days, right? The implication, and it's just implication, means what? That most likely, his gospel presentation is having significant effect or falling on deaf ears, you think? Having no effect. It's, it's, it's absolutely insignificant. Nothing's happening. He's been there some days, and he's preaching the gospel. So Sabbath day rolls around. Again, that's just implication. Sabbath day rolls around, verse 13. And the Sabbath day, we get up and go outside the gate to the riverside. Now, just so you're aware, the riverside is not outside the city. It's about a mile and a half away from the city. Just to give you a picture. The reason why they go out of the city and go a mile and a half outside the city is firstly because there is almost no Jewish population there. There's certainly no synagogue. And according to the law, you can establish a synagogue if there's ten males that are Jewish. There's no synagogue, which means most likely there's less than ten males in the city. Now, there could have been more, and they just weren't practicing. That's a possibility. But functionally speaking, at least there's probably less than 10 males in the city that are Jewish. So there's no synagogue for Paul to go to, as is his custom when he comes into a city. Which is why, ahead of time, he's doing what? He's just out preaching the gospel, most likely in the marketplace or wherever he can find people. So on the Sabbath day, he gets up, he and Silas, and they ask themselves, where can we go? Where can we find any Jewish people at all? Well, they know that the Jewish people are going to be someplace where they can worship God undistracted, unbothered uh, uh, at all, right? Well, there's no, no place in the city because it's a bustling city. So the, the, the Jews will want to get together, and so they obviously most likely by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they determined, well, there's a, there's a really nice riverbank a mile and a half away. Let's walk over there. Maybe there'll be some Jewish people there. Does that make sense so far? 
And so they, because certainly the, the, the cities didn't have like nice parks like we have in cities today. Get the idea. It's just everything's jammed in real tight and there's buildings everywhere. So we find in verse 13, on the Sabbath day we went out outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And supposed means what? Nothing more than they're guessing. They're just guessing that there may be a place that they gather there to pray. Now, I would argue that probably the spirits at work here. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. It is interesting what is missing in this statement. There's no men. Now, we don't want to take it too far, except that maybe there was no male Jews there. There may have been, I mean in the city. There may have been, but it would, you would think that if there were male Jews, they would also be gathering together. But Paul, either way, Paul and Silas arrive on the riverbank, on the riverside, and they find a group of women. It is plural who had come together, and the implication is they'd come together to pray. So he comes over, sits with them, and he begins to speak with them. Guess what he's speaking about? He's speaking about Christ. He's speaking the gospel to them. Christ, the fulfillment of the law. Verse 14, And one who had heard us, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. A couple things we can determine about Lydia here. First, and this is interesting, she's not a Jewish woman. She's, the reason why we, she, also, by the way, she's not from, specifically, from Philippi. We'll talk about that in just a second. But you'll notice that she most likely is not a Jewish woman. What's my clue on that? Here's the clue. He says in verse 14, who was a worshiper of God. Did you hear that? Worshiper of God. Throughout the New Testament, when a Gentile is referenced, it's always referenced this way, as a worshiper of God. A Jewish person in the New Testament is never referenced as a worshiper of God like this. It's always talked about more of their Jewish person. But a Gentile is called a worshiper of God. So that's the clue that tells us that Lydia is most likely, if not guaranteed, to be a Gentile, not a Jew. It says she's from Thyatira, from the city of Thyatira. Now, understand when it says she's, she's from the city of Thyatira, it could mean, it could mean that she was merely traveling through. But most likely what it means is that her city of residence, that is, her official residence is Thyatira. But she seemingly also has a home in Philippi. Okay? Now, it, could, it may not be that, but most likely... She is someone who sells purple goods, which is goods that are of high value, high worth, and much desired. So she's a businesswoman. So we know she loves, she worships God. She, her home city is Thyatira. She is a seller of purple goods. And she's there with the rest of these women. However many we don't know, we just know plural. Paul speaks, and Lydia alone expresses interest. Isn't that the way the text describes it? What do we find? We can only assume, again, I'm making an assumption, but the rest of the women there may very well have been Jewish women. Most likely were Jewish women. But we have this one person, Lydia, who is most likely a Gentile, notice what verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And that's a really important statement. Because at least from Luke's writings, 
it seems to be an exclusive response, doesn't it? There are women plural, and then it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So it seems to be that Lydia alone is responding. Out of all, however many women were there, Lydia alone is responding to Paul's message. She is a worshiper of God. That does not mean that she's a proselyte. It just means that she is following, at least learning and studying what the Old Testament says about God. So she's a follower of God. She's following, in other words, what God has revealed through His Scriptures. Which means, yes, she's probably going to learn somewhere occasionally, maybe uh, who knows where in her travels, but, but she is learning and continuing to learn, and she is really serious about discovering who God is. She's following the revelation of God. But what's interesting at the end of verse 14 is it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now we've referenced this before, but I wanted to pause on it because Luke does this repeatedly, and I think it's really important that we recognize it. There's a group of women there. They're all hearing the same message. They're all hearing the Gospel. Before then, there was people in Philippi that were hearing the Gospel. But Lydia believed. You know what the text is telling us? Lydia believed, correct? As far as we can tell at this point in time, how many else believed? None. But Lydia did. The question that should pop in our mind immediately is, why? Why Lydia? Why nobody else? Why is it that these women who are there hearing the same exact message, they don't seemingly respond? All week long, the message is preached in Philippi, and seemingly there is no response. But on the riverside, Lydia responds. It's an intriguing Statement. It's an intriguing thought. Why Lydia? Well, you could argue, well, of course Lydia would respond. She's following God. Steve, come on! Of course she's going to respond. She's already studied the Old Testament. She's already learning the things of God. She's already understanding what God has revealed. He, she has been pursuing it and looking for it, so of course she'd be the one who would respond. You know what my answer to that would be? One word. Pharisees? Do you understand what I mean? You understand what I mean? Where are the Pharisees studying the Old Testament? Where are they learning about God? Absolutely. If I may use the term, religiously. Continually. As faithful as they possibly could. They even knew the Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah. And yet when Jesus came, what happened? His own, what? Received Him not. Is that what the Scriptures say in John? It's exactly what it says. We must not say, well, of course Lydia would respond because, of course, she was a follower of God. There are too many people in biblical history who were, to take the term from a Gentile just to be generic, followers of God who, when push comes to shove, walked away from Jesus. Did they not? It happened all the time. We must not fall into the trap of saying, well, of course, she was a follower of God. Of course, when Paul would come along and say, well, here's the, here's the fulfillment of all that you know about, about the Old Testament, 
Well, of course she would follow that. Nope. Notice what the text says. End of 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We must not miss that amazing statement. It is absolutely essential that we see that statement. It is crucial that we see that statement. By the way, it is an exclusionary statement. The Lord opened her heart. It doesn't say the Lord opened hearts, plural, does it? See, there's a lot of people who would say, well, the Lord opens hearts, but people can reject it. But it says the Lord opened her heart. It doesn't say He opened hearts. The Lord opened her heart. The text says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It does not say, by the way, the Lord opened her heart so that if she chooses to, she could pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's not what it says, is it? It does not say that. The implication of the text is severalfold. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention, and here's what it means. Because without the Lord opening her heart, she what? Could not pay attention. It must be read that way. Without the Lord opening her heart, she could not pay attention to what Paul had said, to what was said by Paul. That's number one. Number two, observation here. When it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, it does not mean for the possibility that she would. Kind of a subset to what we just said. But also it means that the Lord must open a heart. The Lord must open a heart in order for this to happen. He must. I want to remind you that the Scriptures tell us that we were what? Dead in our trespasses and sins. And although there's a lot of people who would like to say that dead doesn't mean dead, it does. Dead means dead. Ephesians 2 starts off by telling us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You can use whatever term you want to whatever, what that means. Unable, unable, uh, and many other terms that have been generated by, to try to explain what that means. The simple in the basics means dead means dead. I love the way Van, uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til described it. If I may take a moment and explain it this way, because it's a great, exp- great explanation. Cornelius Van Til described it this way. He said, Do the Scriptures say whosoever will may come? Absolutely. Whosoever will may come. Very clear. He said, It's kind of like, this is obviously said later in his life, because it, it makes sense time frame wise. It's kind of like somebody has a pickup truck and they're driving along and they have a loudspeaker on their pickup truck and they're announcing over the loudspeaker, anyone who would like to get into my pickup truck, I will give them $10,000. Is another way of saying anyone who wishes may come, Right? Correct? And he said he drives along and he keeps on announcing over and over and over again, anyone who wants $10,000, just get in the pickup truck and you'll have $10,000. Now you'd expect that some people would get in, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that make sense? It make complete sense that people would get in, even in our crazy time we live in today. It would make sense that people would get in. 10,000 bucks, I'm getting in. But Van Til went on to say the problem is 
that the guy driving the truck is driving through a cemetery. Now put that into the equation. How many people are going to get into the truck? None. No one will get into the truck. Absolutely no one. Why? Well, it's, the answer is obvious. They're all dead. They're all dead. They can't get into the truck. They, not only can they not get into the truck, think it through, not only can they not get into the truck, they cannot even think in any way with regard to getting into the truck. Can they? They can't. Why? Because they're dead. I'm sorry? I still couldn't hear you. Okay, a grave problem. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> a resident comedian. <laughs> and what Van Til went on to say is that although it's not an issue of physical death, it is an issue of spiritual death. Dead means dead. So if dead means dead, and it does, that means that no one can get into the spiritual truck. No one can ever get into the truck because they're spiritually dead. And Ephesians 2 tells us the answer to our spiritual deadness, which is absolute, in our natural state, according to Ephesians 2, is that He, God, the Holy Spirit, makes us alive. That's what it says. He makes us alive. And the argument of Ephesians chapter 2 is when He makes one alive, they what? They are, well, the easy answer is they are alive, right? If you make them alive, they're alive. And that's why in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of what? Yourself, right? For by grace you're saved by faith, not of yourself. That's the basic summation, isn't it? Not of yourself. Why? Because if so, who would... Who would boast? Yeah. Absolutely. But it, the argument of Ephesians 2 is all of God. It's all of God. All of God's work. That's in a brief synopsis what Luke is recording here at the end of 14. In contrast to the rest of the women by the riverside in contrast to, seemingly, the rest of the people who have already heard the gospel in Philippi. In contrast to that, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, could I pause one more time on the statement at the end of verse 14? Pay attention does not mean pay attention as you think it means. If I may say that. If I say, um, if, 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 I'm over, if I'm over at Ken's shop and he's working on something and I'm asking him questions about the thing he's working on and he says, pay attention to what I'm doing. And I look at it and I pay attention to how, what he's doing. Okay? in our modern understanding of the word, pay attention. And I pay attention to what he's doing. And I actually observe it and, and learn what Ken's doing. And then I walk out of his shop. Am I a woodworker? Has anything changed for me at all, Ken? All I have is a little bit more knowledge or data. Isn't that right? I've got a little more knowledge or data. That's all I got. Not a woodworker. I haven't been changed. Right? 
I'm still Steve the pastor. And I'm certainly not Steve the woodworker. And if I threw something together as a result of Ken saying, saying uh, pay attention, I suspect I can't sell it for anything more than firewood. Can't even probably do that. See, that's what pay attention means today, doesn't it? Lois, when you're in class and you say pay attention, that's what it means. Tom, correct? That's what it means, right? <laughs> in this case, pay attention means radically different something than what we typically think. When it says the end of 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, it means that she is being saved. She's paying attention as in receiving, as in being transformed, as being, being a, not just a follower of God, but a believer in Jesus Christ. You're going to ask a question, Jim? Attended to. Good. Respond to. Great. Good. The, 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 exactly. Exactly. She's, she is, she's not merely hearing and remembering. It's not mere data gathering, but it's transformative. Absolutely. What's that? Yeah, she, she's, she, she's being changed by it, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is something that is happening, but notice it's under the, the, the working of the Spirit. Certainly, one who the Spirit is working in have a response, do they not? Absolutely. It's the first evidence of faith. They're responding. They're, 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 the, the, the response is there because the Spirit opened her heart. Or to go back to Ephesians chapter 2, the Spirit what? Made her alive. Absolutely. It's the same idea. And the evidence that this pay attention to isn't merely gathering data is the very next verse. After she was baptized, interesting, after she was baptized, in other words, again, continuing the thought, Jim, there's a continuing response. Right? There's a continuing follow-through. I am now identified with and rejoicing in and reveling in the one who redeemed me, the one who has saved me. It is interesting, it goes on, after she was baptized, and her household as well, this is a term that oftentimes people believe in infant baptism like to, like to uh, grapple with and, and, and argue, well, see, the kids were being baptized too. Um, there's, there's nothing here about children. Do you see anything about little children here? Anything about infants? No, nope, nothing. Nope, nothing there. In fact, it may very well be that household does not even include children. It may very well be that household doesn't even include relatives. Household also included servants. The term household oftentimes included servants. Now the implication, and we see that later on in the chapter with, with the, um, the Philippian jailer, same thing. We'll pick up on that when we get there. But she certainly was prosperous enough to have servants. The implication, I would argue, is that most likely, it would make most sense with the consistency of the rest of Scripture, that her servants, probably because as she was a follower of God, they would have been inundated with all the things she's learning, right? perhaps, I'm just throwing perhaps out, the Spirit also moved in them as well. The text is focusing in on, of course, Lydia. But I can't imagine that Paul and Silas would baptize people who weren't believers. Anyway, she urged us, it goes on, it says, after she was baptized, and her household as well, she, it may very well have been some, some other believers that came to faith at the same time that are actually relatives of, the, of Lydia as well. But after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, Paul and Silas, and uh, Luke as well, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Last implication of the text, and we're going to jump real briefly 
uh, elsewhere real briefly again, then we're going to close it, is it's an in- interesting implication of the text. Here's Lydia. She comes out to the city to pray, out of the city to pray, a mile and a half to the riverside to pray on Sabbath morning. This strange guy comes in with two partners, sits down and begins to talk to them. Okay, you got the picture? And they tell her about Jesus. She repents and believes and is baptized. And she does something that's really bizarre next. I want you to think it through. I'm just going to use Stephanie and Nikki as, a, as an example, if you don't mind. You're sitting down there. You know where the dog park is in Phoenixville? Do you know where the dog park is? Just pretend you know. Okay. It's by the river. About a quarter of a mile down from the dog park, the trail turns right, and there's a Schuylkill uh, River right there. The Schuylkill's right there. It's all woods. Okay? It's just a little bit past Produce Junction and, and uh, Fitzwater Station. It's all woods. You're sitting there and praying because you're followers of God. Not the two of you together. You're both there at your own time. Three guys come walking up to you. And there's a few other women around, okay? They're also praying. Three guys come up to you and start talking to you. After a couple hours of talking, you can invite them to come home with you and live with you for a little while? Does that make any sense at any level? (laughs) In case you didn't hear, they said, what do you think? No. That doesn't make any sense at any level. How much do you know about these, these three guys? Almost nothing. A little bit. But you know as well as I do, guys can talk a, a pretty talk for a while, can't they? <laughs> Nikki's like, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> of course they can. And this woman invites three men she basically doesn't know to come home and stay with them, with her. That's really strange. That is really, really strange. It is so strange that Luke identifies it. Why does he bring this up in verse 15? And notice, Lydia's perspective is not, hey, just come home. It starts off with an if clause, doesn't it? If you've judged me to be faithful. She's not even judging those three, is she? She's asking those three to judge her. Wild. It's 180 degrees out of phase with normal thinking, isn't it? 180 degrees. And as a non Philippian citizen. She's not a citizen of Philippi. She would have very little rights. And she says to him, if you judge me to be faithful. In other words, if you judge me to be a believer, a lover of Jesus Christ, come to my house and stay. It doesn't say come to my house and visit. She said come to my house and stay. Friends, that is the power of the Spirit. That is the power of the Gospel. You've got to recognize Lydia's heart has changed. And she's discovering by the Spirit a united spirit with these three strangers. Isn't she? There is something supernatural that has changed in this woman. Now, lest you miss the point, she's a salesman. You know as well as I do, salesmen don't trust anybody. They spend all their time manipulating and they know that people can be manipulated. And they know that nobody's trustworthy because they know that everybody says one thing and means something else. Right? That's classic salesmen. (laughs) You do it all the time, don't you, Ken? Salesman. I know, but you see it all the time. Absolutely. 
But it's the evidence that the Spirit is at work in Lydia. She's looking at these three men she does not know. And she submits herself and says, if you, if you judge me to be faithful, come and stay. Do you think that Lydia's only goal here is just to give, her, give them shelter? <clears throat> what do you think? She wants to hear more. If you don't believe that, real quickly, look at verse 40. After Paul and Silas's prison stay, so they went out of the prison and what? Came back to Lydia, didn't they? And when they had seen the brothers, referring most likely to, as his brothers most likely to, her servants, that also got baptized. <clears throat> when, they'd, when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them, including Lydia and the, these brothers, and they departed. I don't think in Lydia's mind at all, let's make sure we give them shelter. Lydia wanted to taste and see more about the Lord being good. Her heart had been transformed. She invites them home to stay with her as long as they're in Philippi so that she could know more about this Redeemer. The longing was strong with her. The desire, the craving was so strong with her and her heart was so changed that even in her initial sa saving experience, she recognized these believers, these three, and her were united in something far greater than anything she'd ever had before. I would submit to you that's what starts to happen when the Spirit opens eyes. Now, what's my point? What, this is the thing I find very intriguing about the text. Certainly, we see the sovereignty of God in the text, don't we? It's very clear in the text. It just jumps right off the page. You see the power of the working of the Holy Spirit in someone's life too, don't you? Powerfully so. Lydia, a follower of God is transformed. You see this intimate fellowship, that the intimate bond that takes place when however many people it was are all grafted into the vine, right? That's what happens. But you also find, as I said in the beginning, something I find very intriguing. This is a city, I'm going to go right back to the very beginning. This is a city that from at least from human perspectives, you want to affect the region? You want to affect the region? My goodness, the way to affect the region, go to Philippi and, and, and the Spirit, get everybody saved, right? Wouldn't that make more sense? You just have an outbreak of Christianity. Wouldn't that make more sense? Or just one out of town woman and her servants. <laughs> and later on, the Philippian jailer. And jailers weren't exactly high society. Isn't that intriguing? God does things in different ways than we do, right? God does things that don't make a whole lot of sense to us, doesn't he? Let me just give you an easy example. Wouldn't it make a whole lot more sense? Rather than having Noah preach for repentance for 120 years and nobody responds, wouldn't it make a whole lot more sense just to have Noah preach repentance and have everybody respond? And wouldn't it make more sense? Wouldn't it be easier? Yeah. Of course it would. But that's not God's way. God had something else afoot, didn't he? He had something else dramatically afoot. That was much grander, much greater. We're not going to get into it today, but much grander, much greater, and much different than how people think. I would think, you want to affect the region? Yeah, Philippi is the place to do it from. Oh, we can affect all of Greece. Easily. Just save a bunch of people in Philippi. Now there does form a church eventually, doesn't there? And we have a, the book of Philippi, Philippi, uh, Philippians. <laughs> Philippians. 
written to the Philippian church, but there's no evidence that the Philippian church is some sort of gigantic megachurch. Even when Paul writes to Philippi, there's no evidence of that. As a matter of fact, it's probably a small little tiny church still. But God's ways are not our ways, is, it? is he? Or are they? God's ways are not our ways. God's way is going to Philippi and, and tell the gospel to Lydia. And her and her servants probably, maybe some relatives as well, will get saved. Oh, and then you'll be thrown in jail and, and the jailer and his family will get saved. And that's your ministry in this great opportunity gone to waste. Absolutely gone to waste. Uh, Not from God's economy. Because God only opened the eyes of Lydia and seemingly her servants. Possibly some children. And a prisoner and his family. I'm sorry, prison guard and his family. Doesn't seem to be anybody else. We'll see that next week. God works the way he plans to work and how he plans to work. Can I tell you, he doesn't work through pens. (laughs) He doesn't work through pens. He works mysteriously. And he works sometimes in majestic, powerful, 3,000 people in a day salvation experiences, doesn't he? And sometimes he works with only one. Remember? The previously lame guy, possibly Timothy. And sometimes he just works through a cellar of purple. And that's it. And a few others. But it is God who opens people's eyes. And only God who opens people's eyes. And that is it. And he opens eyes of those he chooses to open. And he does it for his glory. And he does it for his purpose. And that he would open anyone's eyes is absolutely astounding, isn't it? That he would open up anyone's eyes. That he would take anyone who is dead in their trespasses and sins and open them up is astounding. I hear people oftentimes grade against this by saying, Steve, it's just so unfair that God would only open Lydia's eyes, for example. It's not right. And I look at it and say, it's, the miracle is that he opens anybody's. Isn't it? That he opens anybody's eyes is, is, is stunning. That he would show mercy on anyone should cause us to fall on our faces in worship if he opened our eyes and caused us to see. Because you know as well as I do, just like those who are eternally damned bring nothing to the table, nor do I. There is nothing in me whereby God looks down from, the, from, from heaven and says, wow, look at what's going on in Steve's life. Let's open his eyes. I was evil continually. Wasn't I? Absolutely. And in his mercy, he opened my eyes to see if that doesn't cause us to rejoice and worship, perhaps our eyes haven't been opened. <laughs> he moves as he sees fit. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to understand and to realize and remember that you work as you see fit. You are God and I am not. We are not. Our ways are not the best ways. Our thoughts are not the best thoughts. Your ways are above our ways and your thoughts are above our thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth. 
So much higher are your ways and your thoughts than our thoughts. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us and protect us from thinking our way is right, our thoughts are right. I pray that in light of the story of Lydia this morning, that you will cause us to reflect back and realize as saved people we are saved only, only because you opened our eyes to see. You opened up our heart to see the truth so that we would eternally pay attention. So Lord, I pray that you will grab a hold of us again, draw us to worship you, to praise you, to rejoice in you, to magnify you, and to trust you that your ways are right, that your ways are good, even if, as so often is the case, they don't make much sense to us. So change us, draw us to worship. In your name I pray, amen. Let's stand.